0: Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Have you ever visited or seen pictures of Yosemite National Park? I listen to how the famous naturalist John Muir described it in his journal, written in the 1800s. He says, the Yosemite Valley includes two of the most songful streams in the entire world. It includes innumerable lakes and waterfalls and smooth, silky lawns. It includes the noblest forests, the loftiest granite domes, the deepest ice-sculpted canyons, the brightest crystalline pavements and snowy mountains, soaring into the sky twelve and 13,000 feet, arrayed in open ranks and spiry, pinnacled groups, partially separated by tremendous canyons and amphitheaters. They contain gardens on their sunny brows, avalanches thundering down their long, white slopes. Well, if you take time this afternoon to look up pictures of Yosemite, you'll surely be amazed and you'll surely be inspired. In fact, John Muir loved the outdoors and loved Yosemite National Park so much that he said this. He said, I'd rather be in the mountains thinking about God than in church thinking about mountains. What do you think about that? Friend, this morning, are you wasting your time here? Could you worship God better if you skipped out this time and headed to the nearest forest? Are you missing out on some better display of God's beauty? Well, from this section of 1 Peter we're in today, I'm going to argue that you're not missing out. And just to bring you up to speed from what's happened in 1 Peter so far, Peter writes this letter to Christians who are spread throughout the region of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, These Christians have begun to feel social pressure. They've begun to feel isolation for following Jesus. And in their spiritual exile, Peter reminds these Christians of God's great mercy. That the Father, Son, and Spirit together have saved them. That they now have a forgiven past. They have a renewed present. And they have a glorious future. They live in an age that was long promised and is now here. That indicative of God's grace... What he has already done for them serves as the basis of the imperative of God's command, how he calls them now to live. In other words, in light of what they have already received, they are to hope. In light of the salvation they've received, they are to be holy. In light of the salvation they've already received, they are to pursue a life that honors the Lord. And today we'll see that Peter still writes about how we should live in light of having already received God's grace. But Peter slightly shifts. He turns from our personal walk with God to our corporate life together. So today is one of those passages that doesn't just tell you what God saved you from. Today is one of those passages that God tells you what he saved you for. Look again at chapter 1, verse 22. God didn't save you, Christian, for contemplative isolation in the forest. God saved you for sincere brotherly love in the church. God saved you not just to shine his grace through you as an individual, God saved us to shine through us his grace corporately together. So here's one way we might summarize 1 Peter 1 verse 22 through chapter two verse three in our own words. Through his gospel, God has made sinners his children in order for them to grow in Christ-like love for one another. You'll see that on the back side of your bulletin if you want to take another look. We'll divide this passage into two parts. In your Bible, it's likely the two paragraphs of this section. Chapter 1, 22 to 25, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. In each paragraph, there is a central command. Love is the central command in the first And long is the central command in the second. These commands are part of God's purpose for why he saved you. And we'll consider what these commands mean and how it's possible for us to do them. So let's dive in. The first command for the people for whom God has saved is to love. Look again at the final statement in verse 22. That's the command part. Peter writes, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When we think about this, we live in a culture that is crazy about love. This is probably one of those parts of the Bible that people around us could get behind. Yeah, love one another. That sounds good to me. People heartily sing along with the Beatles. All you need is love. But think about the way you use the word love. I even think about it for me. In one day, I can say, I love freshly ground light roast coffee. I love my dog, Annie. I love my wife, Kate. I use the same word for all three things, very different things, mind you. I think this word has become so vague and so overused that not only would we sing along with the Beatles, we would also sing along with the band Foreigner and say, I want to know what love is. So when Peter tells us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, what does he mean? Well, I'd argue that Peter doesn't have a what in mind when he tells us this. I'd argue that Peter has a who in mind when he tells us to do this. I'm sure Peter would agree with his friend, John, who wrote this. This is how we know what love is. You ready for it? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's 1 John three sixteen. My friend, you won't know what love is until you know Jesus. So when Peter writes, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, I bet he thinks back to that upper room we read about earlier in John chapter 13. And I'm sure Peter remembers it vividly. It had been a busy but exciting a couple days for Jesus and his crew. Jesus had received a royal welcome in the city of Jerusalem. The people applauded him. They adored him. And meanwhile, when they go to the temple... Jesus and his crew. Jesus can thwart all the religious authorities and their schemes. He confounds them. They're unable to trap him. And up until that time, the disciples had seen Jesus give sight to the blind. They'd seen Jesus feed the thousands of, uh, of people. They've seen Jesus even raise the dead. And here, this must have been what they perceived as Jesus' coronation as king. So now they're in this upper room eating dinner. And what do they talk about? They talk about their place in Christ's kingdom. I bet over the dinner table, you might hear Peter telling James, James, you don't know it. I'm going to have the biggest mansion in Jesus's kingdom. And then John chimes in. No, you don't understand, Peter. You might have the biggest mansion, but I'm going to sit closest to the throne in Jesus's kingdom. In the middle of all that chatter, Peter feels a wet towel wipe across his feet. And it surprises him. And then he's shocked when he looks down, and it's Jesus. That his king is serving him like a slave. Jesus clarifies that his coronation as king doesn't come first with the crown. It comes first with a cross. So when Peter tells us to love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, he must think of Jesus. I bet he thinks of Jesus' words, that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. I bet he thinks of Jesus' words, that the greatest among you will be your servant. I bet he thinks of Jesus' words, that just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we see a command like love one another earnestly from a pure heart, we listen to that, and we think, of course, of course. How could it be otherwise? I mean, everybody knows this is important. I always strive to love people. Well, I just ask you to be honest, friends. Don't measure your love against the world's love. Measure your love against Christ's love. Because when Peter tells us this, I'm sure he thinks of Jesus. But I bet Peter also thinks about himself. That while Jesus was busy serving, Peter was busy asserting his own way. That when Jesus, that while Jesus was driven by what he could give, Peter was driven by what he could gain. One commentator suggests that a better way to translate love one another earnestly is love one another constantly. Again, I'm sure Peter thinks of Jesus and he thinks about himself. Right before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, we're told that Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the end. What about Peter? But when it mattered most, Peter deserted Jesus. He denied him. In the final moment of his intense agony, Jesus cries, forgive them. In the first moment of his slightest pressure, Peter cries, I don't know him. Friend, it isn't natural for you and me to love like Jesus loves. It's natural for you and me to love like Peter loves not to serve but to assert, not to give but to get, not to remain but to leave. And here Peter writes to a group of people who have begun to feel pressure, a pressure that might rise to agony, and he tells them to love one another as Jesus loves them, to lay down their lives, to lay down their agendas, to serve, to give, to remain. But the million-dollar question is how can selfish and skittish people Love like Jesus loves. How is that possible? Is it just that we find it somewhere deep down within us? No, we look back at the passage. It's possible only by God's saving and transforming grace. Look again at verse 22 and at verse 23. Notice how this command to love is sandwiched with statements of God's grace. Right, top bun, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Bottom bun, since you have been born again. Notice how these are realities that are already completed, that are already in place. So this means the only way that you can love others the way Jesus loves them is if this has already happened to you. The commands of God are possible only by the grace of God. So selfish and skittish sinner, don't you see the good news? You can be purified. You can be born again. And then you can love others the way that Jesus loves them. Let's just look a little more closely at these two statements of grace. How it is possible that we can love one another as Christ loves us. These two statements of grace are two sides of the same coin. They both describe what happens to us when we become Christians. So this first statement says that our souls... Our inner being, our control center, went from being corrupted and polluted to being clean and pure. This happened, it says, when we obeyed the truth. So this obedience is our response to the gospel, the message of Christ crucified and risen. We obey by responding in repentance and faith. We turn from ourselves and turn to trust and follow Jesus my friend, this statement of uh, purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, I hope that clarifies something to you, especially if you're not a Christian. The, the Bible never says something like, I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. Have you heard people describe their story like that? I, I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. I don't think there's anything ill-intended, ill-intended by that, a statement like that. But we should clarify it. We don't make Jesus our Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's just whether or not you submit your life to him. That's, that's the difference. So this statement clarifies to you that saying no to Jesus is not simply turning down one of the options at the religious buffet. No, saying no to Jesus, this tells you is disobedience. It's not it's not just an optional thing. Saying no to Jesus is rejecting the rightful king. And this king saves. This king purifies. But the way that Peter says it here is unusual. He says, "We purified ourselves by our obedience to the truth." Now, to be clear, Peter's the same guy who gives God all the praise for our salvation. Just read the beginning of chapter 1. And yet God doesn't save us apart from our faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive God's grace. Faith is the empty hands into which God pours out his forgiveness. Ephesians 2 verse 8 puts it like this, By grace you have been saved through faith. And as the verse continues, it even says, Faith is not your own doing, but the gift of God. So Christian believer in Jesus, your soul is purified. When Peter reminds you of this, he's telling you, you really can now love one another selflessly and earnestly from a pure heart. You can love purely because your heart has been purified. When Peter reminds you of this, it's his way of telling you that you can love. When Peter reminds you of this, it's also his way of telling you that you must love that not only is it possible for you to love one another, you're also responsible to love one another. This is what it means to be a Christian. Remember Jesus's own words. They will know you by your love for one another. My friend, one of the first signs that God has really saved you, one of the first signs that you really do trust and follow Jesus, that he really has purified your heart, as this says, one of the first signs of that is, this, is if you love other Christians. I mean, how could it be otherwise? If your savior and king shed his own blood for the church, how could you be indifferent to his church? I can quote Peter's friend, John, again, who says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, I understand that there are other factors that can make this more complicated, but I wonder, do you want to be here in this room just to listen to the message, just to sing, and just to pray, as good as all those things are? Or do you also want to be here in this room in order to see other Christians? Do you want to talk to them? Do you want to take interest in their lives? Do you want to serve them and help them and encourage them? Do you, want, do you want to pay attention to how they're doing? And if you observe closely, you'll see that happening all across West Creek. You'll see people make plans for lunch or for a movie night. You'll overhear plans to read a Christian book together. You'll hear prayer requests and you'll hear people actually praying. You'll see others volunteering their time and their energy to care for children who aren't their own. You'll see people help in practical ways like fixing the car or moving their apartment. West Creek, I see you you loving one another well, earnestly from a pure heart, and I thank God for it. We follow this command of God because we have first received grace from God. What does, again, Peter's friend John say? We love because he first loved us. So selfish and skittish sinner, this is what God calls you to do. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the command. But how is it possible? Well, we looked at the top bun of that. Well, let's look at the bottom bun. It's possible because you have been purified and it's possible because you have been born again. This means that God is now your father. You are now his child. And Peter reminds you about how God has done this. Look at the end of verse 23, how he has rebirthed you, how he has given you new life. He has done this through the living and abiding word. So through God's living and abiding word, God makes living and abiding children. Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40, which we read earlier in the service. This is a chapter originally written to God's people who were in exile. It was written to comfort them that their oppressors wouldn't last, but God's word would it was written that though their captors appear bright and glorious that one day they will fade and be forgotten. Peter applies these words from Isaiah 40 to our old way of life. That it will fade, it won't last. That God has set us free from the sin that held us captive. And he has done this through his living and abiding word. And Peter clarifies that what this word is in particular as the book of Hebrews says, God has spoken in many times and in many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken in his son. The word that they heard, the word that they embraced, the word through which they were made alive is the word about Jesus. Who Jesus is, and what he has done, how he lived sinlessly, how he died sacrificially, how he rose again victoriously. This gospel is what God uses to make sinners alive. This reminds you that the gospel isn't just for your entrance into heaven. The gospel is for your transformation on earth. There is new life coursing through your veins, Christian. Follower of Jesus, you now have the spirit of God. He empowers you to love like the son of God, to bear your heavenly father's resemblance as you are now part of the children of God. Christian, you have been born again through the gospel. This reminds you not only that you can love others, but that you also must love others. Not only is it possible for you to do this, you're also now responsible to do this. Because Peter clarifies for you that God didn't save you as an only child, God saved a family. And as I prepared it, made, it got me thinking. It, I, about, I, I grew up essentially as an only child. Any other only childs in the room? Kind of, sort of, sort okay. Well, I know if people, every family has their own unique situation. Most families in the only child setup are in it for reasons outside of their control. Every family is going to have to navigate their own set of circumstances. But for me, as an only child, I had friends, I had cousins, I had kids at church. But I also had a lot more alone time than a lot of other kids. So that means if I wanted to listen to uh, the, my, now that's what I call music CD, that's what I would listen to. If I wanted to play Super Mario 64 on Nintendo, that's what I would play. If I wanted to play basketball outside, that's what I would do. Now as great as that setup is, having siblings means you have to learn more quickly how to do something like share. <laughs> Having siblings means you have to learn more quickly how to care not just about what you want, but to care about how others are doing. Having siblings means you have to learn more quickly how to respond when you're sinned against. Having siblings means you have to learn more quickly how to say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. This life among a family might be harder, but it is beautiful. God hasn't saved just one child. He has saved a family. And this family has started right now. It started here. It's displayed in the local church and it will last forever. You know, I think a lot of us have misunderstood this aspect of the Christian life. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've described your faith as your personal relationship with Jesus. Have you heard a statement like that? I've I've certainly used it. And a statement like that is good and true. You need to make your faith your own. You can't rest on the faith of your mom. You can't rest on the faith of your grandma. You have to trust and follow Jesus for yourself. But language like personal relationship with Jesus might have unintended consequences. It might cause you to forget that even as you're meant to make your faith your own, you're not meant to follow Jesus alone. You've been made a child of God, but you're not an only child. You're part of the family. And this family is meant to be marked by love. Love that's selfless, love that's forgiving, love that serves, love that gives, love that stays, love that's like Jesus' love. That's the first command. The second command, look at it a little more briefly. The second command for the people of God Those who he has saved is to long. So look again at at chapter two, verses one to three. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, just for a moment, let's explain some of the mechanics of what's going on here. That verb, put away, is not actually a command. It's what's called a participle. So the only verb in this section that's a command is the verb, long. So really, we could read it similar to how verse 22 begins. We could say, so putting away all the bad stuff, long, for the pure spiritual milk. In other words, putting away is part of what it means to long. If you long for the good thing, you necessarily have to put away the bad thing. That's kind of the mechanics of how this is working. So what is Peter telling us to do and how is it possible for us to do it? That's how we approach the first paragraph. Well, what he's telling us to do, we could rephrase it like this. Put away what will harm you and crave what will grow you. Or maybe another way. Distance yourself from what will hinder your love for others and desire what will heighten your love for others two sides let's look at both of them so he says put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander what do you observe about this side of it what do you observe well it really flows from the first paragraph all of these things that peter lists are contrary to the command to love they contradict it they're opposite of it So just briefly, malice is a general term for wickedness. It's like a catch-all term for having ill will towards someone else. It would be pretty hard to love someone if you have malice toward them. Deceit and hypocrisy both deal with lying. It means you put on a performance. You tell half-truths. You give insincere compliments. You do and say things to people's face that you would never do behind their back. Envy. Envy. Desire someone's downfall instead of someone's best. Slander does and says things behind someone's back that you would never do and say to their face. All of these sins destroy the family love that God intends for us. So just looking at this side of it, chapter two, verse one, what do you notice? Well, do you notice how this instruction is given to those who have already been born again. That's who it's given to. It's given to people who have already been made new. It's given to people who have already been adopted into God's family. This is interesting, isn't it? Even these people still need to put away sin. That tells you something about yourself, doesn't it, Christian? The famous commentator Matthew Henry puts it like this, that even the best of Christians still need to be warned about the worst of sins. It makes me think of last week at Easter. For some reason this year, we just got a ton of chocolate. We have a ton of chocolate in our house. You go into my kitchen, you'll see Swiss chocolate. You'll see milk chocolate. You'll see dark chocolate. You'll see Mally's chocolate. You'll see chocolate fudge. You'll see chocolate with caramel. You'll see chocolate with vanilla. You'll see chocolate with rice crisps. You'll see chocolate with almonds. You'll see chocolate with malt. And I could keep going. All of this chocolate sits on our kitchen countertop next to our coffee maker and I pass by this nuclear stockpile (laughs) 50 times a day. If I'm interested in eating healthy, I can't keep that chocolate there. I need to put it away. It works similarly with our call to love others as Christ loves them. If you're going to do that, you can't keep taking out sin and munching on it all the time. It'll spoil your appetite. You'll develop bad cravings. You'll get into bad habits. You need to put it away. Christian, you need to understand that part of your daily walk with Jesus is to take inventory of your spiritual countertop. What has appeared there that shouldn't be there and that you need to put, confess and put away? Maybe ask for help with And notice that the call is comprehensive. You are to put away all malice, all deceit, all slander. But this is just one side of it. The other side, Peter says, is like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation. Uh, We can notice a couple different things about this. Peter tells us how we should long. He, He says we should long like newborn infants. Hey, brothers, I'm just going to pause. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is there something wrong behind me? Okay. Do we need to turn off the lights? That little light the front strip light looks like there's some flashing. All right. Can we handle the flashing light? All right. We can do it. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by you might grow up into salvation. Peter tells us a couple of different things here. He tells us how we should long. We should long like newborn infants. So my wife is pregnant. We're about to have a baby. I'm I'm sure that babies don't know much, but babies know something. Babies know that they need to be fed. They want it constantly. They want it intensely. You might grow as a Christian, but you are never going to outgrow your need to be fed. Peter tells you what you should long for. He says you should long for the pure spiritual milk. Other passages of the Bible liken milk to the word of God. And given what Peter has just said, that's a safe bet that what, that's what he's talking about here. And for Peter, this isn't just scripture generally. It's the gospel particularly. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is the centerpiece of God's word. This is what we should long for. Peter says it should be pure. Meaning, we shouldn't long for a watered down gospel. We shouldn't long for a contaminated gospel. Just like babies, if you give them watered down milk, they're going to be malnourished. If you give them contaminated milk, they're eventually going to get sick. You need to long for the pure gospel salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to scripture alone. He tells you to long for pure spiritual milk. The word for spiritual is actually closer to the word meaning rational or reasonable. It reminds you this isn't just a mystical process where you check your mind at the door. So Peter tells you how you should long. He tells you what you should long for. He also tells you the results of this longing, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This tells you that the gospel isn't just how God saves people. The gospel is how God grows people. And this growth Taking the first paragraph in mind, this growth doesn't just look like an increase in knowledge. Don't come here just to learn stuff. This growth looks like an increase in character. The truth should shape our love. And Peter says the result of this growth is salvation. He says that that you might grow up into salvation. Now, what does that mean? Well, the way Peter talks about salvation, he could talk about salvation in the past, what God has saved us from, or he could talk about salvation in the future, what God will save us from. I think that's what he's talking about here, that when Jesus returns, he'll return to judge the earth, and he will save those from his judgment whom he has died for. And how do we know the people who Jesus has died for? Well, the people who Jesus has died for are the ones who are growing. And let this be a reminder for you, Christian, that there is no category in the Bible for Christians who are stunted in their growth. Sometimes the growth is incremental and slow, but there is always an upward trajectory. There might be seasons of your life where you feel like you're just barely holding on. You can rest confident that God is working in you. At the same time, Peter's instruction here to distance yourself from what will harm your love for one another. What will hinder your love? And to crave and desire what will heighten your love? should lead you to ask yourself maybe some probing questions. Maybe this one. Ask yourself, do I care about growing as a Christian? Or have I settled for coasting as a Christian? After you ask yourself that, Ask yourself, what's been my spiritual diet? You won't grow if you won't eat. And you definitely won't grow if you're eating the wrong thing. And then ask yourself this. Do I long to hear and receive God's word? Do I want to feast on the gospel? We talked about how wanting to be around other Christians and how wanting to love other Christians is one of the first signs that God has saved you. But here's another sign. Do you long to hear and receive God's word? I even think about parents in the room as you're encouraging your kids to profess faith in Christ. This should be a sign that you look for. Do you always have to drag them to church? Do they want to read the Bible on their own and for themselves? You should ask yourself probing questions. Friend, do you come here to church admitting that I need to eat and I need to be fed? This is more than just taking notes. Though that can't hurt, this is actually interacting with what you hear. This is talking about it. This is reflecting on it. This is seeking to praise God in light of it. It's seeking to respond to it. We have a little book up here in the front row. It's called Listen Up, a practical guide to listening to sermons. Some of you might have it. Maybe some of you don't. I would encourage you to read this so you know better how to eat when you come to church. Well, friends, if we just left this here, we would have the command of God, but we wouldn't have the grace from God. Peter has told us what to do, but how do we do this? How is this possible to crave what is good and to put away what is bad? How is this possible? Well, look at chapter two, verse three. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice again, this is another one of those realities that is already in place. Right, So this means if they really have come to know that Jesus is good, then they will long for his word. This means it's only when you experience the grace of God that you'll long for God. I thought of it like this. I remember, I remember the first time that I saw my wife. And I was smitten immediately. And I was stunned that a girl like her would be interested in a guy like me. And I discovered that seeing her and talking to her was so good that I would take any chance that I could get. I would stay up late to talk on FaceTime every night. I would drive 150 miles to see her every couple of months. And those late nights, those long drives were really hard, but they didn't matter to me. Because when you long to be close to someone, you rearrange your priorities. When you long to be close to someone, you change your schedule and you do so happily, almost without even thinking about it. My friend, I wonder if this is what you're missing from your walk with Christ. Because I hear people asking for prayer all the time. They ask for things like, oh, just just pray that I would make time to read the Bible and to pray. Just pray that I would find the time. I don't mean to take away from the difficulty of that. There are certainly times in our lives that are more busy. My friend, if this is always the obstacle, though, there might be something deeper that's wrong. Could it be that your struggle to read the Bible and to pray isn't because you need less busyness, but because you need more of a taste of God's goodness? If you long to be close to God, my friend, you'll make the time. If you long to be close to God, you'll you'll rearrange your schedule. If you long to be close to God, you'll change your priorities. When I read 1 Peter 2 verse 3, I don't read Peter addressing our time management. I read him addressing our longing. Have you experienced the goodness of God in the gospel? Let me remind you that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see the one and only God who loves and forgives and blesses sinners. And he makes them his children. When you see the goodness of God, won't you long to be near him? Won't the excuses fade away? Won't the desires and the cravings be reordered? My dear brother and sister, don't just pray that you would make the time. Pray that God would cause you to long to be near him. And then you will make the time. Then you will joyfully feed on the word. Then you'll grow to love like Christ. Where does God display his beauty? Well, John Muir is at least partially right. God does display his beauty in his creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But you know, God also displays his beauty in the church, and you can be part of it. He shows off his beauty through the family he has redeemed by the work of his son. These are the people he is growing to love like Jesus loves. Listen to Ephesians 3, verse 10. Through the church, not through the forests, not through the mountains, Now through the streams, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we pray what we sang earlier that you would use our ransom lives. In any way you choose, let our songs forever be our only boast is you. We need your grace in order to follow your command. Would you remind us of what you have already done for us and strengthen us that we may love one another earnestly from a pure heart and that we may long for the pure spiritual milk of the word and by it grow up into salvation. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name.